please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts and the 17th chapter. As we spend some time this morning just considering the idea of the relevance of Jesus and his resurrection. It is uh, perhaps a strong statement and yet one which we as Christians understand to be true that there is no more significant event in history than the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That despite all of the interests and all of the talk and all of the occurrences of everyone and everything in the world around us throughout the course of history and even now to the present day, there is nothing so significant and so important as what happened nearly 2,000 years ago at Calvary and then with the empty tomb. And so we're going to read about uh, an example of how this message invaded a world that was preoccupied with many other things and yet needed to hear what the most important thing was. Acts 17, starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you're proclaiming for you're bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God. If perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own people or your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man." Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. There are, of course, many things that we think 
are important. And no doubt there are things that matter for us in our day-to-day lives. There are things that matter to the conduct of nations and societies and civilizations. There are things that matter to the well-being of people on a temporal, earthly level. But all of those concerns are trumped, are one-upped by the invasion of a particular person into the world, the God-man Jesus Christ. And all of these are uh, exceeded in their importance by what Jesus Christ himself, this God-man, did while he was on the earth. More than just being a good moral teacher, more than just being an example of what God wanted us to be, more than just demonstrating love and self-sacrifice in terms of not being willing to seek his own, Jesus himself came into the world to be a substitute for sinners who would believe in him. He came into the world for the purpose of dying on the cross. But he didn't just come into the world to die on a cross and stop there. He came into the world to die on a cross and then to be raised from the dead and exalted into glory. And then, of course, one day to come again. The message of the resurrection comes into our world and it gives us a wake-up call of what matters most. We find this in this passage where many people are debating and disputing and talking about whatever they want to talk about and discussing important matters, going about their lives and their daily business. Wherever they may find themselves, they're going about all that they think is important. And then one day this man comes in, the Apostle Paul, and he tells them something that if they understand the significance of it, will turn their world upside down. This is what the resurrection does. It changes everything. If someone has been raised from the dead, that changes everything about the way that we would otherwise view the world. Everything. If there is a resurrection of Jesus Christ who claimed to be the Son of God and who claimed that his teaching was correct and his teaching was the only way of salvation, then everything is different. And that's exactly what happened when Paul came to Athens. He brought this message into a foreign world that was largely unfamiliar with what the scriptures would say. He brought it into a world that had their own ideas about the way that things worked. And he brought it to a world of people who were really just not at all thinking even about matters like the resurrection. Or at least certainly were not expecting there to be a man named Jesus who had been raised from the dead. And he brings this message and says, this is what needs to drive your life. This is what needs to be at the core of how you see the world. And he tells them that they need to follow this message. And this then is no less important today for us than it was for this group of people in Athens at this time. He is going and he is speaking here sometime around the 50s AD, around the year 50. uh, Nothing has changed in terms of what matters most since then. And nothing ever will, all the way until the Lord Jesus returns. There may be more pressing secondary matters. The things that they were concerned with are maybe not the exact same things that we're concerned with today. But nonetheless, the message of Jesus and his resurrection remains as relevant and significant and primary as ever. And we need to take heed to what is spoken here. And we need to see how important this message not only was but also is. When we arrive at this point in the book of Acts, there is, of course, much that has taken place. But 
the author, Luke, is uh, narrating the events of Paul's missionary journeys, really starting in chapter 13 all the way through the end of the book. And here we find him describing what took place on Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, Paul has arrived at the city of Athens, this famous, well-known, influential ancient city, after being chased out of Thessalonica and Berea. He had gone there and preached the word of God in the synagogues, preached it to the Jews who were there, and many people believed, but many people also were against him and hostile toward him. And as we find in verse 14, immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. His ministry partners stayed back behind. But then it says, those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. So Paul is now on his own in the city of Athens and something happens that causes him to say, I can't wait for my ministry partners to get here. I've got to do something about this. And it's because Paul understood this point, that there is nothing more important than people understanding the message of Jesus and the resurrection. This is it. They have to know the gospel. They have to know that Jesus was crucified as a substitutionary sacrifice. And they have to know that he was raised from the dead. And so Paul here in this passage is going to show us by his example and by his preaching why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is of supreme importance to everyone in the world. Again, by his example and by his preaching, he's going to show us why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is of supreme importance to everyone in the world. Now, not everyone may view life in that way. Not everyone may think and claim that the resurrection of Jesus is the most important thing in the world, but they ought to recognize it. And it's my hope that this morning, if you don't already recognize that, that you will recognize that. If you do know it already, that you'll be affirmed and you'll be strengthened in your conviction about this point, not only to tell this to other people, but also yourself for your faith to be strengthened. So we're going to look then at this passage and what it teaches us about the relevance of Jesus and his resurrection. And we'll begin by what we call, uh, with what we call Paul's provocation. Paul's provocation. He is provoked. Verses 16 through 18. Uh, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him. Why is he being provoked? What is his reason for provocation? Well, it says... He was observing the city full of idols, full of idols. People in this city are worshiping all kinds of gods, so-called gods, made with human hands, stone, gold, silver, wood, whatever they might be. But they're these carved images. They are gods that do not align with the one true God, and they are worshiping them. Paul knows from his Old Testament in such places as Isaiah 44, that these idols are in fact not really gods at all. So it's not as if they're worshiping actual other gods, but the problem is they are worshiping something other than the one true God and they're badly misrepresenting what God is like. And so he is provoked. His spirit is provoked. And his uh, reaction here itself is instructive for us. We often have a lot of problems with the things that we see in society, in culture, with our neighbors, with people that do things that are wrong. But what he was focused on here was the spiritual problem of worship. 
He wasn't there in Athens looking around and saying, look at this amazing center of culture. Look at this amazing what will become a historical city. All he could see, at least as his primary focus was, these people are not worshiping the one true God. And in fact, they're doing it the opposite way. They're worshiping idols. So the main thing in his mind, the main concern that he had because of his right thinking was these people need to change the way that they worship. And the problem that he saw was really twofold. It was with the people themselves not being believers and therefore they're in danger of judgment. And then with God himself not receiving the proper worship that he is due. Paul was constantly concerned for people to be saved for their own sake. But he also was concerned that they would turn from the worship of idols and other things to the worship of the false or of the one true God. So these are the things he's concerned about. These are the things he's after in his missionary journeys. People being saved and people turning into true worshipers. So he takes action and he has to do something about it. So we find in, uh, then in verse 17 his response to provocation. His response to being provoked. And it starts with his actions. What does he do? His actions. He was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. And in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And when it says here that he is reasoning, this has a little bit more of a disagreeing kind of term here. He's not just, you know, showing reasons to someone who's very receptive necessarily to what he's saying. But he is disputing or arguing. And the goal is to persuade. This was Paul's constant practice. In Acts 17.2, he went into the synagogue. He reasoned from the scriptures. Acts 18.4, after he leaves here, he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. This was not sort of a, an apathetic, uh, well, let me just add my voice to the conversation and you can just take this and kind of do what you want with it. No, he was trying to persuade. He was trying to convince. He thought he was right and he wanted them to come around to that same conclusion. So this was what Paul did. He was reasoning trying to attempt to get them to believe. Uh, sometimes people who are not Christians are surprised when Christians are trying to proselytize them, when they're trying to convince them, and they come up with all kinds of ways to try to, to get them to back off and say, whoa, 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 let's not talk about religion. Let's not be so serious here about these things. You know, this is just kind of off limits. I believe what I believe, and you would believe what you believe. Well, if you believe what you believe about the gospel, that someone has to believe in Jesus or else they are in danger of judgment, and that the only way of salvation is through Jesus, then you're going to do what Paul did. And you're going to try to persuade, and you're going to try to convince, and not just say, well, I don't really care what you believe as long as you're sincere. Well, I'll just let you come around to whatever you come to, and we'll just agree to disagree, and we'll just get along. When someone understands the gospel, they understand what that means, not just for them, but for everyone else. And so, of course, they're going to try to show you that their way is the right way, not because they themselves think that they're so right, but because they themselves have had to be convinced the same way as you were, or the, the same way that they're trying to make you become. So don't be surprised. Don't be resistant to someone trying to speak to you persuasively about this. And of course, if you're a Christian, this should be your mentality as well, that you have this message that people need to believe, and you ought to try to show them why what they believe needs to change into what the Bible says 
about the way of salvation in Jesus Christ. So Paul is reasoning, he's disputing, he's doing this in two primary places, which would then imply two primary audiences. First of all, in the synagogue. It says in the synagogue where the Jews would meet for worship and for instruction. And it says there were Jews and God-fearing Gentiles. These people were really all over the Roman world at that time. The Jews had been dispersed out. And then these God-fearers were Gentiles who had sort of joined themselves to the Jewish religion of the Old Testament. And some of them may have indeed been true believers by faith in the God of Israel. Either way, Paul is going and he is trying to bring this message about Jesus Christ and his death and his burial and his resurrection to these people and to convince them that this Jesus aligns with the scriptures that they claim to believe. Paul understood, by the way, that uh, even in the midst of his provocation by idolatry, that idol worshipers were not the only people who need the gospel. Sometimes we miss this. Uh, This is the way that we often uh, misunderstand the nature of people today and the importance of the gospel. Paul understood what we sometimes forget, which is that mere monotheism, only believing in one God, is not enough. And in fact, not even believing in a certain sense in the one true God of the Old Testament is enough. They needed more. They needed to believe in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't just enough to say that you ascribe to the God of the Old Testament because if you believe Moses, Jesus said, you would believe me because Moses wrote about me. If you believe the Old Testament and Jesus shows up, you're going to believe in him. Otherwise, you don't really understand and believe the message of the Old Testament. Paul was not content with people to be monotheists. He was not content for them to hold fast to the Old Testament shadows and then to reject the one that they were pointing to. He was not even content with uh, religion or with good morality or with Judeo-Christian, what we might call ethics. He wasn't content with religion rooted in the Bible. He wasn't content with people who would sort of make an enclave of themselves away from the idolatry of the city and of the people around them and say, all of these people are worshiping wrongly, but we have the truth. He wasn't content with that. Faith in Christ was the only thing sufficient for salvation. And he was not content until someone had that. And so he went into the synagogue where they already had the Old Testament scriptures. They already knew who the right God was. And he said, you guys need the gospel. You need to believe in Jesus Christ. Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I suspect there may be a few people here at least who are concerned about the godless direction of our society. And you look around and you say, I don't like where things are going. I don't like what people are doing and saying. I don't like how that looks. I wonder though, if you have the same concern about the people who are living really good lives. And if you say, well, those people are fine as long as they don't go crazy. Are they fine? Or do they need what Paul preached? Do they need the message of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul says those people need Jesus too. Being anti-godliness, excuse me, being anti-godlessness is not the same thing as finding favor with God. Being against sin and evil and depravity is not the same thing as being saved. We need to believe in Jesus Christ 
and to trust him and his death and his resurrection. Paul, however, did not just stop there. He did preach to such people, but he also was reasoning somewhere else. He was reasoning in the marketplace, in the marketplace, out just in the, uh, the agora, you may know the term, the town center. All the people would come here, the center of social activity. And he was doing this every day with those who happened to be present, really anyone who just happened to be there. So he goes into the synagogue, he starts preaching to the people there, and then he goes out into the marketplace because he just can't take it anymore and he's preaching to people out there. He's reasoning with them. He's going and he's talking to whoever he can talk to. And what we find here is that there really for Paul was no particular target audience for his message. He didn't say, I'm going to isolate this group of people or that group of people. He understood that the gospel is needed by everyone, that there's no one outside the scope of the need to hear his message of Christ dying and being raised from the dead. This was his strategy, preach the gospel to everyone. And this shows us then that the gospel is not just for those who are religiously inclined. That might be what some people think of when they think of the gospel. They, uh, they might say to themselves, well, you know, I'm not really that religious. And I'm fine with you being religious, but I'm not really that religious. And that's a little bit like the guy who has a bank about to foreclose on his house and about to repossess his car. And he is about to have everything taken away from him. And he says, you know, I'm not really into finances. Well, maybe not, but you need to get into finances and you need to start doing things to take care of a big problem that's about to come your way. Religion is not just something people do because they're inclined to be religious. People come to the gospel of Christ because they need salvation. And the problem is universal that causes us to need that salvation, which is we are guilty before God of all of our sins. And we need someone to rescue us before we are judged for it. And so it is with the gospel. People walking through Athens, going about their business, they have no idea of their need for someone like Jesus Christ. And Paul steps in, stops them in their tracks and says, here is what should be the most important thing to you to fix your most urgent problem. So he's reasoning with anyone who is present. He's trying to persuade them of the gospel and to put their faith in Christ. And in the process, he runs into some questioners, some questioners. He was not only reasoning then, he was also disputing. And it says that in verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Again, discussing, debating, disputing. He is disagreeing with them, but they are having a conversation about it. And not a conversation that is inconsequential, but nonetheless, one where they're actually talking back and forth. Simon Kistemacher helps us understand these groups. First of those groups were the followers of Epicurus who taught that death ought not to be feared. Even the soul comes to an end when the body dies is what he said. Further, he taught that every being strives to attain pleasure by avoiding suffering and grief and by pursuing satisfaction and happiness. That was the philosophy of the Epicureans. The Stoics... On the other hand, uh, taught that man attains his highest aspiration when he subjects himself to the course of events which divine necessity controls. When man submits to his lot, he reaches the state of happiness. Now, there is more to those philosophies than that, of course. But you can see how these things are not in keeping with the gospel. This, this is not the way that Paul wanted them to understand. And so they didn't share the same view of the world. And among this group, there would have been very negative responses, various negative responses. You can see here, some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Um, according to one dictionary, this term 
this idle babbler are, uh, refers to people who, quote, spend their time around stores and markets to pick up scraps from the produce and live off of them. And it's a picture of what might be called, quote, unsystematic gathering. Basically, it's just that somebody believes a little bit of this, a little bit of that, kind of eclectic in terms of what they think, and then they go out and they tell people about it. And of course, this wouldn't be just something that took place in those days. It would be people that have their kind of own ideas about everything, and they're not shy about sharing them. And basically, the accusation is this person's thoughts are not well organized. They're insulting Paul's degree of knowledge, his ability to come up with rational thoughts. And uh, of course, today is no different Is it the way that people refer to the gospel message and to Christians? Uh, You know, this is just, uh, the Bible is just for simpletons who can't think for themselves. It's just for people who don't really know that much and they don't understand how things really work. We can just see from this that uh, the idea of people thinking that the gospel of Christ is foolish is just not new at all. This is not something that just came about in recent days. This has always been one of Satan's tactics. And the tool that he uses to try to demonstrate that the Bible is foolish is always changing. It's always new. It's always trying to hit at the thing that's going to make us uh, be receptive to it. But God knew when he designed it that not everybody was going to accept his gospel. In fact, he says in 1 Corinthians 1... Verse 23, that we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. The Jews didn't like it in light of their understanding of Scripture. They couldn't grasp it. And then the Gentiles didn't like it because they saw it as against the kind of wisdom that they held to. This Greek philosophy. So the gospel is something that is often viewed as foolish. Now the gospel is not anti-reality. It's not against, you know, it's not just made up. This is not against historical events and historical persons. In fact, this, there is no religion more grounded in the importance of what happened historically than Christianity. If Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, the whole thing is undermined. And the gospel is not anti-reason. Paul reasoned from the scriptures everywhere he went and on the basis of the scriptures. But the gospel is against the foundational philosophies of what the world thinks. It is going to be out of alignment with what many people value and the way that things, the way that people think and what they think is most important. And so there's nothing wrong with being intelligent. There's nothing wrong with reasoning. There's nothing wrong with being wise. These things can have great benefit. But when it comes to the favor of the world, don't be surprised when your message does not get you that. And so they were making fun of Paul. They're mocking him. They also said... Uh, others said he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. Strange deities. These were gods who were unfamiliar to the Athenians. Some have even proposed, some scholars, that strange deities were illegal and grounds for punishment, as if maybe he's doing something wrong. Um, But they're accusing him nonetheless of teaching something that is different. We recognize that in verse 20. He said, you're bringing some strange things to our ears. This is is new. But why did they accuse him of this? Well, it is because of what he was preaching. Look at the end of verse 18. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. You notice the content of that message? It is very distinct. It is very clear what the two main subjects of his message 
were. Let's start with the first, that he's preaching Jesus. He was proclaiming not merely a system. There is a system to Christianity. It can be systematized. We can have systematic theology. But Christianity is not merely a system. It is about a person. He was proclaiming Jesus. So here he is proclaiming not just something, but someone. Christianity is not just a set of morals, though there are morals. It's not just a set of practices or commands, though those are involved. And it's not just a group of rules that's distinct from other religions, though we do have those. It includes those things. But Christianity is not just a set of things to do or things that we do. Rather, it is about Christ. It's about what he did. It's about what he does. It's about what he will do. And taking part in Christianity is about our response to him. How do we respond to him? It seems that there's always a lot of talk in American culture about God. Just kind of vaguely speaking, this nation needs God. We need to turn back to God. We need prayer. We need religion. And often when people refer to God, they are in fact referring to the God of the Bible kind of generally. But where is Jesus in all of this? Again, even the Jews of Jesus' day had faith in the one true God. But where is Jesus in what people understand to be the need of people today? And so it is with many people in our culture today. You believe in God. You believe in the Bible. You know, this is the best book. It's the good book. God is good. He's kind, you know. You got to worship him. But what have you done with Jesus? What have you done with him? And it is easy enough to give him lip service because, you know, you can get some credibility in our culture still in some places to some degree by being called a Christian. But is your religion about him? Have you sought refuge in him? Have you given your life to following him? Have you humbled yourself and put your faith in him? That's what Paul highlights for us because he wasn't just preaching Jesus per se, but he was also preaching Jesus and, it says here, the resurrection. The resurrection. Now, there's a helpful division when we think about what we're to understand about Jesus Christ. When we think about this theologically, we understand Jesus in terms of his person, who he is. He's the God-man. He's the Son of God. He is fully divine and he is fully human. And this is who he is. He became the God-man upon his incarnation. He has always been God from all eternity, but he added a nature. And so now he is one person with two natures, divine and human, and will remain so always. He is sinless. He is pure. He has these various roles before God as the high priest and the king who's coming to reign. So that's his person. But on the other hand, we have his work, what he does, what he has done. In many ways, now by this point in history. And one aspect of this is his death. His death, which was not an accident or an act of passivity. This was not just an example, although it was an example. But Jesus came into the world on purpose to die on purpose as a substitute for sinners. So that our sins might be taken away. And then, of course, another vital component of this is his resurrection. His resurrection from the dead. And this is what Paul was preaching now this wasn't the only thing that Paul was preaching about Jesus he didn't just go around and say there was a guy named Jesus and he rose from the dead we know elsewhere for example when he went to Corinth in the very next chapter Acts 18 
He later reported that he had preached nothing among them except Jesus and him crucified. Which again doesn't mean that he only talked about the crucifixion, but that was the emphasis of his message. And that was a distinct focus of his message that was different than what they would have naturally expected or liked. So it is here with the resurrection that he certainly was preaching the whole gospel, but the resurrection sticks out to the people here in Athens. This was notable. It was very clear that this was part of the actual message that Paul was saying. He wasn't just coming and telling them there was this guy that lived and he did some stuff and he died. And he wasn't just telling them you need to change your life, although he does tell them that in a moment. But he was telling them someone rose from the dead. He really actually died and then he really actually came out of the grave. This isn't just a spiritual resurrection. It isn't that he was somehow resurrected in our hearts or a cute fable or a legend or a fairy tale or a story that just kind of makes us feel good and gives us something to gather around. Sadly, many people treat the resurrection that way. And it's as if they want to believe in the resurrection, but they don't really want to believe in the resurrection. So they just kind of go halfway and say, well, maybe he wasn't really raised, but he was just kind of raised. And I'm not going to press too hard either direction, because if I do, then I have to commit to one side or the other. And I have to say either, no, he wasn't, and I don't believe that, or that he was, and all of the ramifications that come with that. Paul, for his part, was saying, Jesus actually rose from the dead this is extremely significant he spends an entire chapter in first corinthians 15 talking about the importance of the resurrection from the dead much of which is focused on jesus resurrection as the primary basis for everyone else to be raised one day jesus and the resurrection was this distinct message and really you read through the book of acts it is the most prominent part of the message of the apostles even more so in at least what is mentioned than the crucifixion, incredibly so. This is a vital part of our religion. It's a vital part of what we are to believe about Jesus Christ. And of course, this was very well noticed by the people in Athens that he was preaching to. So then, Paul preaches about this and um, they want to hear more. They want to hear more. So what does he say? What does he go and he tell them when they want to hear more about this Religion, what is the basis for all of this whole thing and why is the resurrection even necessary? And we want to spend just a little bit of time sort of going through these, uh, the next section here starting in verse 19 looking at Paul's proclamation. Paul's proclamation. What did he preach? What did he preach? Well, he was inspected, first of all, uh, at the Areopagus. He was inspected and uh, they were examining him. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming, for you're bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. They took him up on this place. Uh, this was kind of a, a judicial court that could have been there. And there were also people who were interested to know what was going on. This place is sometimes known as Mars Hill. And they're interested to hear him out. And he said, they tell him that these things are new and we want to know what they're all about. And verse 21 explains why. All the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. They are just curious. And Paul is tasked with the responsibility to show them that his message is not just one more among many. And it's not just something for their temporary entertainment and amusement and then they're to move on from it. But rather, this is what they need to bring their life in alignment with. 
just because they were only interested in it because of its novelty didn't stop Paul from taking advantage of the opportunity. So also should we, if we see that people are willing to hear the message, we say this is the time and I am going to jump in and I'm going to tell them what they need to know. The next thing we find in his proclamation is his connection with their religion or his connection to their religion. Verse 22 and 23, he makes a connection. He stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I observe that you are religious in all respects. How do you know that, Paul? For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So he looks around. And he says, you know, you are so religious that you even cover your bases in case you've missed the God that you're supposed to be worshiping. This extra altar to an, to an unknown God, whoever that might be. And yet he doesn't do this to commend their religion. And he doesn't say, man, you're so religious. This is great. We can be friends. We're on the same page. Let's jump in and let's fight the battle together against all those unreligious people. Instead, he does this to show them that they're wrong. He says, look, you're kind of seeking for something, but I need to correct your view. And so he says, verse 23, therefore what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. He shows them their error. He makes a connection with their religion and then he shows them their error. He says, you yourselves recognize that there's a God you don't know. Well, I'm going to show you what he actually is like. And this will show them their need of the gospel of Jesus and his resurrection. And so the next thing he does and what we find in verse 24 through 29 is his correction of their theology. His, connect, his correction of their theology. The first thing that he wants to show them is that God is the transcendent creator. God is the transcendent creator. Verse 24 begins, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Paul takes it right from the top. He starts his gospel by talking about God and clarifying a right understanding of God and who he is. You notice that this is not what they asked for. He is talking about Jesus and the resurrection. And Paul says, well, let me back this up and tell you why he's needed in the first place. Why do you need Jesus? Why do you need the resurrection? Because your view and your worship of God is wrong. Jesus isn't just there because we have some kind of spiritual friendship need and void that is missing. Jesus came and died and rose from the dead because people misunderstand and misworship God. So he starts there and he says, you're getting it all wrong. You're getting it all wrong. God is the creator. He is one. There is one God and he made the world and all things in it, not just part of the world and he is lord of heaven and earth not just lord of a section of geographical territory or not just of this nation or that nation or this realm or of this particular facet of human emotion or of human activity he's the god who is over all and who made all things so this is a distinct god from the kind of gods that they would have worshiped in the first place but then he even says he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands 
He doesn't live in the kinds of places that men make. You can't confine him to those things. In fact, he's not even of such a nature that he would dwell in those. It doesn't mean that he has a better house somewhere far off into heaven. What it means is the very nature of God means he doesn't dwell in earthly temples the way that their false gods would have done. And so he's telling them that these are totally invalid. He's directly confronting their understanding of what the nature of God is altogether. And of course, this is vital because the reason why people go to false religion, the reason why they think it's okay to just offer some sacrifices or do some good works is because they have too low of a view of God. They think that God is like them. They think he's not that holy. They think he's not that powerful. And so maybe he's just the kind of guy to either avoid and make sure you don't get on the bad side of a little bit. Or maybe you worship him sometimes because he can do some things for you. But they don't view him as this entire, exact, over everything kind of person. They don't view him with the proper respect and honor because they just put him in a little side basket. Here he says, no, he's the one who made everything and he's transcendent. He is outside of his creation. He is not part of his creation, but he is outside of it. And so he doesn't dwell in temples made with human hands. In addition to being the transcendent creator, God is the sovereign Lord. He is the sovereign Lord. Verse 26 says he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitations. Look at this, that he is in charge of all of this. He made every man, and he is in charge providentially of even where everybody lives. Some of you might say, well, I can get outside of that. I'll just move somewhere else. Well, guess what? If you did that, it's because God sovereignly arranged for that as well. He determined the appointed times and boundaries of their habitations. This speaks of his providence, of his sovereignty, that he is the Lord over all. And it says here that this was done with a purpose, that they would seek God. If perhaps they might grope for him and find him. He did all of this with a view that people might look around and say, wow, there's a God to worship. And yet, people did not do that. God is the sovereign Lord, but people don't respond to him as such. More than that, God is the imminent Father, the imminent Father. As much as God is transcendent and outside of his creation, he is also everywhere, and he is, in a sense, in and through his creation. He is, as it says here, at the end of verse 27, not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. So we, uh, we, we can't get outside of God. God is everywhere. He's not localized to a particular place. Even though he is of a nature of not being part of his creation, yet he is still in and through and omnipresent everywhere in his creation. And... Uh, he rules and he reigns over that creation. He is, it says here, uh, the father in one sense of all mankind. We know that spiritually speaking, uh, anyone who's not a believer is not a son of God. They are a son of the devil, in fact. Romans 8 says all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Only Christians are the sons of God in the adoptive sense and in the inheritance sense. But in terms of coming from God... All of us have. It says one of your own, uh, even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. 
And being then the children of God, we ought not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. If we are rational, conscious human creatures, we shouldn't think that we came from stone and wood, and therefore we shouldn't worship a God like that. So this is what God is actually like. In light of this rejection of God's revelation of himself and his character, Paul says there is something that all people now need to do. This is his direction to the gospel. His direction to the gospel, verse 30 and 31. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God has allowed people to graciously continue to remain, to have children, to pass on generation after generation after generation. What did he do with the flood? Wiped out everybody except for Noah and his family. And yet he made a covenant afterward that no matter how evil people are, he's never going to destroy the world by a flood again. What a gracious act of God. And God is patient. But that doesn't mean that you aren't required to do something. And he says, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Again, this is not just for religious people. This is not just for Jews. This is not just for people who are in one particular type of uh, demographic or background all people everywhere should repent turn from their sin turn from their idolatry turn from their worship of other gods today the greatest other god is not idolatry as such it's not that we create these other people that we call gods or other things that we call gods really it is our own self second timothy 3 warned about this way way long ago when it said that in the last days, men will be lovers of self and lovers of money and lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. If that doesn't describe our society today, I'm not sure what does. Lovers of self, pleasure, and money. This is what we worship. We don't think we're idolaters because we wouldn't be so primitive as to go and to worship these things and think that there's some kind of spirit in that carved idol that can do something for us we're well above that we just worship ourselves and the fleeting pleasures of life which of course we think is much more sophisticated but that just as much if not more is something that needs to be turned from to instead worship the one true god repentance is commanded paul says all people everywhere should repent and the reason is judgment is coming He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Who is him? It's the one that he has appointed. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came as a savior in his first coming. He will come again to save his people in the second coming, but he is going to judge the world at that time as well. And he's going to do so in righteousness, not according to the twisted standard of our culture and our world. Instead, he will judge according to what God says is right. The whole earth is going to be judged. How do we know this? Well, this is Paul getting back to the subject that they asked about, isn't it? The resurrection. God says, this is coming. You want to know how I know? Because God raised Jesus from the dead. That's the proof. Isn't it interesting? You hear all the time. How do we know that Jesus rose from the dead? What's the proof of that? And we spend all of our time laboring about the proof. Paul just takes for such granted that Jesus did rise from the dead, not because he doesn't have evidence, but he just understands it as such a fact, historically speaking, that he uses that as proof for something else. 
God is going to judge the world. How do you know, Paul? Because he raised Jesus from the dead. And Jesus is the judge. Paul is sure about this, not because he has a pie-in-the-sky kind of hope. He saw the risen Lord. Over 500 people did at the same time as well. The scriptures themselves had predicted that it would happen and that it all came to pass. You can read about this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. All of this demonstrates the reality that Jesus rose from the dead. And Paul says, on that basis, I'm telling you, he's coming again and he's going to judge. And so you need to turn to him. Today we celebrate Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Do you know what this means for the need to turn to God? You need to turn to him because he's coming again to judge the world in righteousness, but also because his resurrection means that we can be saved from our sins and stand ready for when that judgment comes. His resurrection means that he demonstrated the truthfulness of his claim that his death would not just be any other death, but that it was atoning, that it paid for sins. It validated the truthfulness of his message. And so because Jesus is raised, we can know for certain that his message is true. And we can put our hope in him and know that we will not be disappointed. How was the message received back then? We find in verses 32 through the end, Paul's reception by the Athenians. Some rejected him. Verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Some postponed him. They put him off. Others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some believed him. Verse 34. Some men joined him and believed, among those whom also, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. At least four. At least four, maybe more than that. Dionysius, Damaris, and multiple others. What a glorious thing it is that these people believe the message. And they believed it because it was true. And these are people that were saved from their sins. And so it can be the case as well. Many of you are here because you have believed this message. Others of you, this is the time not to put it off, not to sneer, but to believe and to follow and to find eternal life. And I hope that everyone will leave here today having done that. What a wonderful thing that God did not leave Jesus in the grave, that our hope is not just in principles for a better life here and now, but that we have a risen Savior in whom we can put all of our hope. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for Jesus and his resurrection. Thank you for the message of the gospel. Thank you for your kindness, your patience toward us. And thank you for your gracious love in sending your son to die in our place and your exaltation of him over death and the grave. May we find great joy in him this day. And we pray in his name. Amen.